Hi, this is Danielle Krissa from The Jealous Curator, and this is episode 193 of Art for Your Ear. I am so excited for you to hear this episode. If I say Queen Elizabeth pearly button portrait or huge floral bouquets made of spoons, <laughs> you will probably be able to guess who's showing up today. Yep, London-based artist Anne Carrington is on the podcast. I have loved her work for years, and I was lucky enough to interview her for my book, A Big Important Art Book, Now with Women, a few years ago. That said, our entire back and forth for that project was done through email, so I've never actually spoken one word to her in person. Well, that changes today, and I am trying to keep my fangirling excitement on a low simmer, but I can't guarantee that'll last. All right, let's dive in and find out about how she turns knives into flowers. And oh yeah, that time she hung out with Prince Charles on a barge to discuss a project for the Queen. The Queen, you guys. The Queen. And a deep cleansing breath. Here we go, calling Anne Carrington at her studio in Margate. Hi, Anne. Welcome to Art for Your Ear. Hi. How are you doing? Good. It's so nice to like see you talking and meet you kind of because I feel like we know each other because of interviewing we, you for my book and for fo- you know following you for so long online but we've never ever even talked to each other. I know nice to put a face to the words. It is it's really nice. Yeah. Um, now I have five million questions for you. I know some of the answers because of having you in my big important art book now with women. Um, but I still have more questions because when I watch you online, there are some crazy things going on in that studio of yours. And I'm like, <laughs> where is she getting this stuff? I have a lot of questions. So okay. but, um, <laughs> I, Far always, away. I always like to go back to the very beginning. And I don't know if I asked you this, um, where you grew up and um, what you were what you were making when you were little. Was it sculptures back then too or? Well, I, I grew, grew up in the UK and my father had lots of different jobs and we moved all over the UK. So we didn't stay anywhere for very long. But when anybody asked me where I'm from, I kind of say Birmingham because we stayed there the longest. And that's central industrial England. Um, and that's where I spent most of my teenage years so I feel like Birmingham is home okay and so were you like in high school and stuff were you the art kid at school or um yeah no I went to I was quite academic and I went you know I went to kind of good schools um but really the only thing that interested me was art and um ever since I was young I was making and drawing I'm not from an an artistic family at all but I just had this drive to make and this interest in whenever I saw a picture on the wall I'd stop and look and try and work out how it was put together I mean like when I was six or seven even the little nursery pictures I used to copy them and try and reproduce them I was so intrigued as to how somebody could build an image just using like colors paint pencils Mm -hmm. and um and then I if I didn't have something I just used to make it so I remember my mum wouldn't let me have flip-flops because she thought they were dangerous (laughs) And I thought, well, I'll make myself a pair of flip-flops then. And I just remember like cutting like two kind of, you know, feet shapes out of corrugated cardboard and, and threading a bit of wool round and thinking, they're good enough, they're flip-flops. So, yeah, how sad is that? That's and, the uh, best! Make... <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then I used to kind of collect shoe boxes, like little shoe boxes and and like kind of, partition them up and make them into little houses and you know match boxes for beds and and I could just enter this whole other world in there I absolutely loved it just completely yeah. submerged and what did your imagined. family think if they weren't an artistic family were they like oh and um, well they were kind of quite encouraging I mean there's lots of photos I was talking to my dad the other day and he was saying saying oh you know you've been looking through some old pictures and he said every single picture you're you've got knitting needles in your hands and you're knitting something and um I think my mum could knit and then after a while it's crocheting but they couldn't I taught myself to crochet I think my mum taught me how to knit and you know kind of classic kind of crafts that you might do kind of in the 60s and 70s but 
loads of those like really long Doctor Who scarves and crocheting <laughs> blankets but just just um I like the rep repetition of it as well just repeating things which I still do yeah. and I was very very focused and very quite obsessive I could sit quietly and do something that most people would get bored of you know just very doing lots of repetitive things I found it quite calming huh and clearly you still do and I was in, yeah, and I was, you know, quite a big family. There were four of us and uh, that was my thing. I had my thing. So, yeah. yeah. And so um, now I think I remember from our interview from, for the book that um, when you did go to art school, didn't you go for painting? Yes. So um, I went to three different art schools. I went to one in Bourneville in Birmingham, which is called, which was a foundation course, which is what you do in England when you want to study art but you don't really know what you want to study so you try out you try out everything you do a little bit of sculpture fashion textiles ceramics and then uh, you decide which one you like the best and that that's the one that you decide to follow through for your degree and I decided I was a painter at that stage I mean it was all very last minute I was like oh am I a textile designer am I fashion am I what am I <laughs> no I'm a painter it was all like within a month you know yeah. and uh and uh, and that was it and so I went um, and did my degree um, in painting and um, but it didn't stay painting for very long it was very soon kind of much more collagey but it was kind of too late you know when you kind of you've gone down a route and you and you feel it's too late to turn back and you're not you're on the right course but you're kind of on the wrong course and it's, right, right. it's all a, and there was a sculpture department downstairs and I knew I should be in there and I kept going down and saying, can I come into the sculpture department? And they said, well, you know, what are you going to make? You know, and I said, well, I've got these ideas for sculptures. And I thought they were really good ideas for sculptures, but it wasn't what was fashionable at the time, which was very, everybody was making kind of Andy Goldsworthy things from leaves and um, Richard Long pebbles. And it was, mm. and, and I didn't really like any of that at the time. And I just knew my way wasn't going to be that way. And um, and then at the end of the year, all the sculpture students were applying to the Royal College of Arts to do, obviously to study sculpture. And I thought, well, I'm going to go and study sculpture there. Like, and anyway, so I applied to do sculpture, and um, and I got an interview, and the sculpture students didn't, which kind of made me kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got a place at the Royal College of Art, and. Uh, the sculpture tutor was actually very nice and he came up and he said like maybe I missed something here and I said well yeah you did you know but um he was a nice guy he was a very nice guy and um he was just just kind of stuck in their ways you know it's yeah how yeah. it goes and um so it was all you know I left on good terms with everybody and uh and then I went to the Royal College of Art. So I applied to the Royal College of Art without ever having made a sculpture, by the way. So, uh, so Were you nervous had, or excited or both? Um, imposter syndrome, I think. Yeah. Um, so I remember, well, I went to the interview and I remember them asking me who my favourite sculptors were. And I, I'm, I'm, the thing is, I had I was really, really focused and I knew I wanted to make sculpture and I had millions of ideas in sketchbooks. And what, it had, what had occurred to me in my last year of my painting degree was what I was doing at home was my art and not the paintings I was making at art college. And at home, I was, and what I'd always done since I was young was collect bus tickets, stamps, maps, rubbish from the floor and just kind of keep a diary through objects which I found on the street or that things that might be pop objects that might be sent to me and it's kind of it was like recording my life through the things that the objects that came my way and it was only right at the end of my painter degree that I realized that was that was my sculpture and that's what I was going to do so when I went to my interview at the Royal College of Art I had sketchbooks full of ideas and it was kind of really quite clear that I knew what I wanted to do and um, and I was, you know, I had a passion for it. So, um, but that said, I'd never actually physically built these ideas into anything three-dimensional or or even kind of really anything two-dimensional of any worth either. But, um, and I remember them asking me who my favourite sculptors were. And because I hadn't been on a sculpture course, I hadn't <laughs> heard of any sculptors either. So I was like, oh, 
And I said, well, I don't know any sculptors. And they said, well, don't you think, you know, if you're applying to the Royal College of Art, the best art college in the world, you should know, you know, the names of some sculptors. And I, I remember thinking, well, actually, you can be like a really good footballer and not know all the, the names of all the footballers on the team. That's and an that's excellent I, point. And I, and I think it's really true, you know, in, and you might come at it with a fresher, from a fresher point of view. So, um, so yeah, so I started at the Royal College of Art and then I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, like very, very um, felt a bit out of my depth. But I kind of had an inner confidence, but even so, um, I was like, because I didn't know how to weld or join things. And, you know, and did I it feel like most things. people did? Yeah. Oh, even though they may have been pretending, but I think yeah. they probably did, did know what they were doing. And I, I, I think there was a few other pretenders in there too. I, I'd put money on that. <laughs> Oh, okay. So, um, but but it was quite nice because in the way I just kind of played on that naive um, way of making things. Like I thought, right, I'm not a sophisticated maker, and that's how my work is going to look. And so it was, I was kind of defined by that, and it was quite fresh, really, in a way. So rather than weld metal, I, sat, I thought, well, how do, how the hell do I join this? How do how do you join two tin cans? Well, I'll, I know how to sew, so I'll drill some holes in it and I'll sew it together and um wow. and so yeah so and and wood you know I knew I could glue it together or nail it together quite more often than not I, I sewed it or I'd get rope and I'd I'd um knit it you know just having using the skills that 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 I had really and but slowly 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 I kind of learnt how to um join different materials in the way that they should be joined or I yeah. learned how to do it and decided it was better doing it the other way yeah <laughs> well you certainly know I... how to weld now did you learn that at at the Royal College of Art no 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 I only learned to weld like a couple of years ago no I know yeah yeah so wow. um I had this idea for the sculptures that I wanted to make which were um bouquets made from spoons you've probably seen yeah. them yeah. and they're they're they were based on Dutch still lives from a trip that I took to Holland. And I was thinking I'd really like to make a three-dimensional um, Vanitas painting. So you in Dutch still lives, you have from the 18th and 19th century, maybe even the 17th century, you have these paintings of flowers. And in within those flowers, you the flower, they're not just paintings of flowers, they're Vanitas. So which means remember you will die, one day you will die, memento mori. And so there's there's lots of symbolism within the painting. So you might have like a, a dying flower to show the passing of life, or you might have um, a wristwatch to show the passing of time, perhaps a laid table, a knife and fork, the pleasures of life. And I was looking at all the objects and I thought, if you pulled all of those objects out of the picture and made it into a sculpture, what would it look like? And also, I also thought it's interesting because it's the only thing that would actually survive to this day in that picture would be the knife and the fork and the spoon. Everything yeah. else would have, you know, decomposed. Yeah. And it might, they might actually still be in the world somewhere. So, um, or melted down and made into something else. So, um, so then I thought, well, okay, I really can't sew this. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to, you know, I've got to stop circumnavigating this problem, which was always like, how do I make something without welding and just learn to weld? So um, I took myself off to evening classes and learned how to weld about three years ago, maybe four years ago. Oh, oh my gosh, yeah. that's great. I did not know that. I thought that it was from, that you'd learned. No. Wow. No, it's was an, it exciting it's when that first little flame popped? Or were you thinking, oh dear God, I'm going to well, set everything well, on I fire? Well, I, I turned up with um, with my knife, forks and spoons to weld. And they were like, of course, like it's a structural welding engineering course. And <laughs> you're learning how to build maybe build you know weld the bridge together perhaps or at the very least a garden gate and uh so you can't you know well you can weld steel and nickel and silver but you're not meant to because structurally it's not strong enough to withstand you know if you were building a car but right. if you're building a sculpture of a certain size it's fine so they kind of they banished my knives and forks and spoons and <laughs> and got got me welding you know but I learned the skill and uh and yes, I do. And you can weld those um, items. Yeah, well, I've seen lots of videos on your yeah. Instagram of you welding yeah. away. That's so cool. Yeah, and, and since then, I, you know, but with those bouquets, it's not just simply welding, you see. So once you start, you're like, okay, so I can weld, I can put this bouquet together. And then you're like, 
well, at some of these spoons are silver plate and some of them are brass. And so you, you have to solder the silver ones. You have to braise the brass ones. So it's kind of lots more skills had to be learned. Then I went to silversmithing college last year, I think it was. Wow. Might have been the year before. Yeah, just in the evenings, which um, I didn't really get on with. I love welding, but silversmithing is, is really a little bit too fiddly for me. Mm. and a bit too fine-tuned it's very very not that welding isn't skilled it's just a different kind of skill and it didn't suit me mm. so but I, can, I tried I, taking a um a jewelry making class in the evenings when I was a graphic designer so in Toronto it's so hard oh my <laughs> gosh I had things stuck to other things and like oh I was no. like oh forget it we're supposed to make earrings with these little posts I could not like solder the I posts know. on I, I know like, this is not for me. I'll just buy my jewelry. <laughs> I know. I think it's a scale as well with jewelry, isn't it? It's yeah. Just too, yeah. And I just don't have that kind of patience. Well, no. you know, maybe I would if I was making the right kind of thing, but with that little tiny fiddly, I just don't have the patience to do it. No. But I, now I really admire jewelry yeah. designers. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's just good to do something, even if you do it really badly, just to appreciate those. Yeah, absolutely. So I did a glass making course the year before last. Same thing. It's like, okay, these people have, you know, they, these, the skills you need to glass blow, you build up over 10 years. It's not, there's, it's no, there's no, there's no kind of shortcut there. Yeah. So, are you, st- are you but, still playing with that or is that Well, I was you? thinking of maybe getting a glass foundry at the studio and, and, but no, it's just, you know, just, you're better off just working with somebody else that has those skills and help getting them to help you envisage your ideas. Right. Um, or, or use a different material that's similar to glass, perhaps like resin or something. But um, yeah, I just thought I, I just didn't have the time really to, to that you need to, to dedicate yourself to become a skilled glass maker. Yeah, that's a so. that's a big one. That's a huge commitment. I tried it once. I was visiting a university. Oh, you did that as well. Yeah. yeah I, well, I just tried it. I was I was a guest at a, at a university for a week, and they had. Um, what do they call them? A hot shop. And I just yeah. thought it was so cool. And I was like, can I try it? And it's, I found it really intimidating, just the heat and how fast you have to move and how quickly and how something can break. It is. How what? Yeah. How dangerous it feels. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just, I mean, it was really cool to try, but I was like, again, really admire those people. But yeah, you can see yeah. how it would take you years and years to develop the skills yeah, to do absolutely. the things you'd want to do. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay, we need to rewind. So you finish at, because some crazy stuff happened when you finished your MA. So you finish, and then I remember this, I thought this was so cool. You were basically like in the <laughs> 90s, squatting yeah. with a bunch of other artists in abandoned yeah, so, places. So um, I don't know where your listeners are. Are they all over the world? They're all over the world, yeah. Okay, so I'll explain the English squatting laws in that case. So <laughs> okay. basically in the... In the 90s, it, it was legal to, well, it was legal right up into the 1990s to squat in England, which meant if there was an empty building with a window or a door open, you could legally enter that building. If it had been unoccupied for, I can't remember how many years, like two years or three years. And it was a medieval law that had never been changed. So there were a lot of empty buildings in central London at that time, like areas that are so crazy expensive now. And um, so we... Just, there was a bunch of five, six of us. We'd kind of have a little mooch around at night, find, you know, we're like, well, which one, which building looks good? And you choose, usually choose a building that was owned by the local council or by a really big company because it would take them longer to realise you were in there and longer and longer to get you out if they did want you out. But uh, we found this great building in Clerkenwell, central London, which is kind of near the city of London. Um, and uh, yeah, we just, the door was open. We went in, we put the electric on and then we called the owners um, and it was an insurance company. And uh, we said, look, you know, we're in, we're in the building. We're going to look after it. We, we'll stop other people squatting it, but <laughs> we're doing you a favor. <laughs> right. So, um, and come down and have a look and see what we're doing. And they came down, they said, yeah, that's fine. As long as when we want you out, when we want to redevelop the building, um, you'll go. So, and I think we were there for seven years. Wow. So, yeah. So you change the locks, you put the electric on, you, you know, and it's kind of very run down, but it's very secure. We were there for seven years and then they asked us to leave because they were developing it. 
and then we were went you all to sculptors a, no um i was a sculptor uh obviously um a theater designer two theater designers a jewelry designer a painter um maybe another sculptor and then there were a few people came and went so it wasn't always wow. the same people but it was the same there was five of us that went or six of us that went on to the next building altogether and um that was in Islington again central London a huge warehouse building enormous big enough to have a gallery as well like a big gallery so one area we worked in and um the other area we turned into an art gallery and uh, we used to have like revolving exhibitions there but so because we weren't me- because we weren't meant to be there, this that one was uh, owned by the council, and it took them about three years to cotton on to the fact that we were even in there. They <laughs> they they didn't know, yeah, you know, they didn't really know what buildings they owned or who was in, in what. So, um, so yeah, so we'd have these exhibitions which were amazing. We'd take it in turns, and um, but and we'd get quite a lot of publicity, like in magazines, because it was kind of you know interesting work, and what we were doing was kind of you know a bit out there and uh, I can remember them always saying so where's the gallery we say well you can't print where the gallery is because you know we'll so then there used to be a number that people would have to call and then they'd have to and then they'd get hold of one this is pre-mobiles and there'd be a message that they'd pick up the message where a bit like going to a rave you know so and they'd be cool. sent to, oh and then God. they'd be given the address or they would send an envelope sent a letter saying where it was so and of course not many people managed to make it <laughs> But it was good. It was great times. And and the the beauty of it was that, you know, we were artists. We were able to make work without any pressure of having to sell anything. And we had the time of our lives. You know, we used to go to clubbing at night or have lots of parties there. You know, we'd have a few collectors who used to come around and buy work. Um, But, yeah, we were poor and we'd sell the odd bit of work. But the pressure wasn't on to sell the work. So it was very creative. You're not making you're making a proper art for art's sake. And right. a lot of people, you know, quite a few people that shared that squat went on to be like really very successful, you know. So one, I'm not surprised. You know. Like it just sounds like such a creative incubator time where you're surrounded by other people doing really cool yeah. things. You don't have rent to pay. I remember, remember Alexander McQueen coming around one day. And uh yeah, he, but he wasn't called Alexander then, he was called Lee. This was like <laughs> when he was a student. And then when when he left and one of my fellow squatters went on and became his art director, they carried on working together. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's so, the other cool thing is you're like right in the action, too. It's not like you were had to be somewhere way out like you guys were in the thick of everything. Yeah. That was I mean, a lot. There was a lot. There was a lot to go because we we're very close to Hoxton and all the whole YBA thing, although I was never a YBA myself or considered part of it but um obviously you bump into all the artists all the time and when I was at the Royal College Tracy Emin was at the Royal College at the same time so she was on the painting course so so you have this network of people that you know from um from having had studios in near each other or or from college or friends of friends and you all at private views at night so yeah yeah I I was thinking because I um I don't think I asked you that in the book, but I was thinking, well, hold on a second. If this was in the 90s, because that's when the YBA thing was all happening was in the 90s, yeah. too. And I was like, they must have, like, you must have all, like, crossed paths and stuff, because how can you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot. And, you know, I can remember some of them coming over to the studio, you know, when they were beginning trying to get in on our squat, because we had a free studio and everybody wanted in in. And we were very snobby about who we had in and who we didn't. <laughs> and also very protective because, you know, we we had the ones that had broken in. And we're, you know, it's ours. No, you That's can't right. come in. Find, find your own place. So there was a bit of people squatting on top of squatters. And it was all very, I know. Kind so of cool. Like, what a neat story. Out, oh, trying to keep people out from, you know, climbing in your windows at night. You know. but, um, <laughs> but, yeah, it, it was good. But, I mean, it was it was hard. I mean... There was no running water. We had to fill the toilets, like flush the toilets with canal water. So we'd take it in terms to fill buckets up from the canal and because we couldn't get the water put on. But we always managed to find an electrician that would like do something dodgy with the electric and take it off the cables outside, you know. So totally <laughs> illegal activity, but I good fun. That. Yeah. And when you're doing all of that, were you kind of living in the moment or were you thinking like, 
did you have a plan for what you like what you thought your career would look like or were you just making art in that moment it's funny because my daughter asked me that yesterday she said oh. you know yeah and um I, we, I think we were really living in that we were ambitious but living in the moment just making the best thing that we can at, could for the time I wasn't thinking um, uh, you know obviously it would have been great to have a gallery show but it wasn't it I, I wasn't ambitious in that way it was more kind of it was more what was in front of me and what I was making and what I was doing that night than right um, than a big career plan I really didn't have that at all and everything that happened I mean I remember having a bit of an awakening though because when I left the Royal College I did have a quite a good gallery and um and I had a show that had you know pretty good reviews and I got lots of attention I remember thinking oh this is pretty easy you know <laughs> it's just it, it just landed and on my lap and I just thought that's what happened and I had an argument with the um the, the gallery dealer and the gallery the gallerist and um I thought well fine I'm, I'm off but it's going to be so easy to find someone else because you know I've had a good show here and it was kind of it was like I was flavor of the month and the flavor had, had gone and I couldn't get arrested and oh. I, I, that was when I was working in the squat so uh, and I was thinking well you know what do I do and of course you can't it's not like now where you can you can get seen and show yourself you know show your wares on the internet or online or on Facebook or whatever it is it's, it was a bit like unless you were anointed by one of these grand galleries in London you didn't exist and then there was only like kind of 20 big galleries or and then you know maybe a few smaller galleries but really really hard to get to be a part of that and I remember thinking well I can sit around and make work and try and let them you know try and get their attention and and I just thought oh no I can't I just can't be bothered with that it's just too demoralizing yeah. and <clears throat> as a sculptor you really need the most important thing as an artist I think is confidence and to have your confidence knocked back um is not good so I just thought right and I remember this had this seminal moment I thought I know I believe in what I do I like what I do um I'll just put my own shows on end of that it's just really really simple it's like and that was when and when I realized we had this big space in the squat that we weren't using and I said to the others look I'm gonna have a show in that space it's going to be a gallery and they were like yeah and then somebody else said me too and that's how it started so I think I actually had the second show in, in that gallery space and then from activity activity leads to activity you just do one thing and then yeah. it always leads to something even if it's a, a negative thing but it yeah. usually isn't it's a usually a positive thing yeah and, and doing um, nothing leads to nothing nothing leads to nothing yeah and making you know but one person even if one person comes to that show yeah. you know that's and and, it, and of course you know a, a magazine came and they they did a shoot and sh you know featured my work in a magazine and then some from that somebody else saw something but it was years of still putting on my own show in fact the weird thing is I still do it because um even now even though I could have a gallery now I'm so used to doing it my own way and getting my own cut of the deal which I've set you know which is kind of isn't the same as most galleries mm -hmm. um that um it's it's kind of yeah I just I still I mean I do show with galleries but I don't I'm not signed to any gallery and mm. um, I'm free to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it and that also involves lots of quirky things that most galleries would turn their nose up at that you know that little adventures that I've had when I've gone off and been on a reality tv show like in America or whatever and I just strange things yeah what were uh, you on it was called um, nine by design it was oh the, yeah the yeah Novogratz. yeah uh, yeah oh, is that how you know the Novogratz yeah oh yeah. okay it's all coming together so, now so they, oh my god so I was making artworks for, I made some artworks for the Novogratz. So I explain who the Novogratz are? Yeah, sure. I've had Robert on the, as a guest, but like years ago, oh, but go you? ahead. Yeah. Have you really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So the Novogratz are kind of a big family, seven kids, and the parents are interior designers, designers, art collectors, and they flip houses and they have a great collection of art and they design for a lot of hotels and interesting spaces. So they approached me to make some artwork for a hotel and um 
they were happy with what I'd made and then they said you must come over we're having a launch party you must come over to the party I'm like you know I can't just go to New York from London for a party you know and they, <laughs> anyway long story short they said look come over you can be on our tv show and we'll pay for the flights and we'll put you up and I was like okay I didn't look into it any further I just thought yeah. that sounds that sounds good to me and uh but of course it it, it well it it was um it, I talk, what what do they call it when it's not a real show at the time a uh, uh, pilot I think yeah. it was like a, a pilot a pilot or the first couple of series or a couple of programs but it wasn't really fully evolved and no one knew it was going to be the hit that it was and of course it went on to be I think it was Bravo's second biggest show that year after Desperate Housewives or something yeah yeah and um um and then it was syndicated all over the world and every time it went out my work was featured because I can't remember I was only in two episodes I think but they actually came over and filmed in my studio in the UK as well so the whole Novogratz they filmed an episode filmed an episode over here in my studio but every time the show went out I sold lots of limited edition prints because I sell prints on my website but um I usually sold one original piece as well or two original pieces and by the end of the first series I had enough money to buy a studio cash wow and that's when that's when things really changed for me so um that was by then I wasn't squatting I had a little rented studio and then um I thought right rather you know this money is going to disappear unless I kind of do something I have to mark it I've got to do something with it and uh I'd seen this big rail like derelict railway goods yard in Margate and uh and when I went people no one had bought it basically because it, they didn't have any guaranteed access to running water electric or gas or drainage uh, but it was an amazing build. But it had an amazing. It was an amazing building, and it had access. That was the main thing. And I thought, you know what? Because I've been in so many squats, I just thought, well, it's not a problem because you know, we get a portaloo. We can. I, I can bring water in every day. It's just drinking water and hand washing water. I can, you know, the drains. If we can't fix them, you can't fix them. We've got no running water. It doesn't really matter, you know. So. Um, so I bought it at a very good price for all, and lo and behold, we got everything working. But it wasn't guaranteed to work, but it did work. But so we have running water, we have electric, we have gas. We Are you still in that building cars. now? This is the building I'm talking from. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh! And where is Margate? How far? Because it's on the Mar- water, right? Yeah, Margate's ninety miles east of London and um it's and it's on the coast um and they since i've been here they've built a big art gallery a very good art gallery called the turner contemporary where they show all of turner's um paintings but also uh-huh. lots of contemporary art artists as well um so it's famous because tracy emin is also from margate uh-huh. um, uh, and basically i think i've been here 15 years now but um it's changed a lot and now there's a lot of artists here it's one of those places that has um, been taken taken over by artists and designers, and now it's considered very hip, Perfect. Uh, kind of very very London overspill. Um, yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's close to London, you can still get a lovely big build. Well, not so much now, but you could lots of empty warehouses, interesting Victorian buildings, ripe for the taking for not so much money. So yeah. Um, well, and you so, have your Margate Shell ladies there. I've got my Margate Shell ladies. So I've how made how my... early like when when did your Margate ladies happen? Like had you just gotten there? Or how... Yeah, it was, I think I'd been here a couple of years, but it was a coincidence because it was actually like an international competition to make yeah. um, a sculpture for Margate because they were trying to bring people to Margate, and they were especially trying to attract artists to Margate, and uh, so they at the competition was blind. It was international. They didn't know if the people that had you know they chose the shortlist were from holland new york you know yeah. wherever and um and they were from all over the world and it but it, i think because i had an, an insider knowledge of margate it might be and i kind of felt i knew what would work there anyway i i won the competition yeah. and um and can you talk I'm, about where the, the shell ladies came from the yeah idea? so um so basically they wanted a sculpture that would um 
draw people into the old part of Margate because it was very derelict and nobody really went there. So the plan was to make this sculpture that people would kind of gravitate towards. Um, so I ended up making in total 12 shell ladies and they're like giant ladies made entirely from seashells, um, except for one, which I made in bronze and she's the permanent one. And the I, the thinking behind it was, was uh, like when I was a little girl and I used to come to Margate, you used to see these little shell ladies. I think you, used to, you have them all over the world. Yeah, in little like gift beachy shops. Beachy tourist places. Yeah. Yeah, very, very kitsch, kind of very seaside kitsch, little shell ladies. And uh, I, I thought, I wonder what it would be like if, I blew one of those up onto a really large scale because it had that kiss me quick kind of English kitsch element. And yet they looked like they'd kind of stepped out of the grand Georgian buildings for which way, for which Margate is so famous. Mm. And um, so um, I built 11 shell ladies, like huge. I think, I don't know, about 11 feet high, something like that. And they got wheels on them and I wheeled them out every weekend and then put them in different positions all over Margate oh. and then people would people and they were all named after the famous Margate ladies and then people would try and find all the different shell ladies and it would especially children and that would mean it would draw them right through the streets of Margate and I think that at the beginning there was a prize for people that found them all and then at the end of the season I'd, I'd made a, a big bronze as well which now's permanent so basically they cast seashells in bronze and then all kind of welded and brazed together and that sits at the end of the the harbour arm in margate that's still there so and so will she yeah. turn green For, like... yeah she's verdigris darling verdigris <laughs> that's what they call it did you know that <laughs> no i didn't know that <laughs> i just went with the, the, green <laughs> the technical term is yeah. like verdigris. so were that's the other it. ones actually made of shells like real shells uh, yes, they were. And that was oh. another thing was like um, when I went, when, when they were discussing the project, I thought I probably wasn't going to get it because Margate can be quite rough. And uh, they were, you know, they were saying, well, you know, really, we're going to leave these sculptures out on the streets of Margate all weekend. Like, you know, someone's going to take a hammer to them. And I was like, I think, well, look, the alternative is making something so permanent and so um, robust that it's ugly, you know, from, yeah. from, metal or concrete or whatever it is because you're worried what the locals are going to do to it but perhaps if you make something really beautiful and delicate for the locals the opposite might happen yeah people might actually respect it and think oh my god we've got these on our streets and that's exactly what happened like no yeah. one ever touched them nothing ever happened to them no one sprayed them like they weren't broken they you know it was it was wow. amazing actually yeah. and and people were very very attached and very fond of them and what year was that, that they were being wheeled around and moved around? Oh, you know what? I think it was about eight years ago, but I'm terrible at years. Okay. I don't know when. I'm like really rubbish. <laughs> it's I just don't all know what. blended it's together. All, yeah, it's like even the decades kind of, I don't control. I but think, yeah. and, and so where are they now? Where are they, the... Um, they're, they're in storage in oh, Margate okay. at the moment, yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's so, so crazy. I didn't know about them being moved around. That's even more exciting. Yeah, they had little trolley wheels on them. Yeah. Oh, they were, that's they, so cool. It was a really good project to be involved with. Yeah, and so cool to do it like in where, like actually where you live. I love that it was an international call and it ended up being yeah. somebody who lived there, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, and, and wasn't isn't there something about your children's names being on the bronze piece? Oh, yeah, I've forgotten that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, <laughs> So the bronze piece was made from, if you imagine a skirt full of um, shells, but the shells were made from clay so that they, they could then be, you could make a mold of the shells okay, to yep. turn them into, so then you pour the bronze in the in the mold. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and um, my children wrote their names in the wet clay and put their handprints. But you know oh. what, I'd forgotten that. I but didn't I forget put, that. I love that story. <laughs> I also put their names when um, on the royal banner that I made. Oh, the royal banner. And do you know about my love for the queen? No. Oh, <laughs> I have this like weird obsession with her. Um, uh, I'm doing sort of different, more sculptural work now, but I, for years and years I've done collages. And okay. Liz is in all of them. Oh, really? And I always joke that I don't know if it's because... Uh, 
I'm Canadian. So she's on all of our money. So I see her every day. Um, but she also, um, totally reminds me of my grandmother and so much so that I did this little project called, um, making sense of my muse because I was trying to figure out why I use the queen all the time. Okay. And I started researching and I found like teen photos of her and teen photos of my grandmother and they're the same and they are the same age. Oh, they really do look very similar. They really do look alike. And then I, they both got married in November. They both had four children, um, like all of these crazy similar things. And uh, so now I put her into my work as a nod to my grandmother without actually okay. having to use my grandmother's um, yeah. photo. So anyway, I have a weird obsession with the Royals. And so um, of course the first piece of yours I ever saw was because of the Novogratz. It was one of your um, queen, queen stamps. Buttons. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. made out of the pearl buttons. Yeah. And um and so I was already hooked because it was the queen. And uh, of course, now you've gone on. And how, how many pearly queen stamps do you have? Oh, I've, oh, well, I've made quite a few. Um, I don't know how many, but every they kind of develop and they change. Like everyone's on a different color background or different. But, and at the moment, I'm, like, I'm experimenting with um, like graffitied backgrounds, um, <sighs> like like velvet with lots of kind of like ink blots and bleach stains on and then tie-dye and it's like this kind of constant in my work this queen this stamp image and why why for you like why is well it started because um i've all my father's uh coin was a coin collector and a stamp collector so (gasps) um i always loved coins and stamps um but couldn't love them because he loved them (laughs) (laughs) like you know you have to remove yourself from things yeah it's only when I it was years later I was like I want to revisit that I did like them really but I just you know I just didn't like having quite so many around the house right every wall was, was covered in coins and stamps and yeah you know. so um and then I was thinking it would be really interesting to blow up a stamp onto a large scale I've been thinking this for a long time and then Jacob Rothschild um uh it was the Queen's 80th birthday and he asked me to, to make an artwork to celebrate the Queen's 80th birthday for himself. He's got Waddleston Manor just outside London. And I thought, oh, this is my opportunity to make like a giant postage stamp. So I suggested this idea because they obviously didn't come to me because they wanted something conventional. So I said, you know, I had this idea that if you blew a postage stamp up, let's see what happens onto a really, not not actually blow it up as in a, an explosion, but as in, <laughs> you know, make it larger. And uh, and so I blew it up onto a lot of larger scale, and then I thought, oh my god, how interesting! Because the printing dots look like buttons. And then I started thinking about the pearly kings and queens. And do you know about the pearly kings and queens? I do because of interviewing you for the book. But can you tell the listeners so what that's about? The, the pearly kings and queens are a very London tradition, and uh, it started at around 1870 with a guy called Henry Croft who wanted to collect money for charity and he customized his suit with um, buttons that actually came from a sunken ship in the Thames. I think uh, it's a ship that was on its way to Japan sunk and, le- and its load spilled its load onto the Thames of, onto the sh- shores of the Thames. And um, he started using the buttons and customizing his suits. And it just started this trend among, amongst costermongers and costermongers were um, people that sold um, things from carts, usually apples and fruit. And it became a kind of Victorian fashion and not just a fashion. It was like you had to, it became the pearly kings and queens. But to be a pearly kings and queen, it's like being the real royal king and queen. It has to be part, it's passed down through generations. You can't just don a pearly suit. And so even now there's pearly king and queen, kings and queens families all over the East End of London. And there's a pearly king of bow, there's a pearly king of king of shoreditch every different area of london has a pearly king and a pearly queen so um yeah still wow and if you go to a charity you quite often see them i mean funny enough where we live in margate there's a pearly king and queen of ramsgate which is the next town because i think they moved out there's a lot of london overspill here Mm. so um every year they have a big harvest festival in london where you'll go and you know they'll all be there in their pearly outfits an incredible kind of like folk art kind yeah of yeah they're so over. beautiful I looked them up um when... like real 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 pearls but anyway I liked that idea of dovetailing 
the Queen and the, the alternative royal family as well, like the Pearly Kings and Queens. Um, they actually, per, the Pearly King and Queen of Ramsgate actually came to the studio. So oh, that was great. But wow. yeah, they're like, um, they're like East End royalty. And you can't just decide to become a Pearly King and Queen. It's, I think there's actually a bit of that you have had, there are some families that have donned suits without having any history of Pearly Kings and they're very looked down upon I by the, suppose the world. You need, yes. There needs to be a bloodline. You need the heritage. Yes. You need the heritage. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you start working on things like that, because I'm, I'm, I'll put all of this artwork in, our, in the post that goes with this podcast so people can see, but it's kind of insane how many buttons are on there. And like from far away, you can't, I mean, it's, you see the sheen of the pearliness, but yeah. as you get closer, it's like, oh my God, there are zillions of buttons on there. So when you're in the middle of making any of your work really, but we'll use that as an example, do you just kind of go into like a meditative state? Like, do you, like how, it's so much uh, tedious work. Yeah. It looks like. um, no, it's that thing that, that I was talking about from when I was younger. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, you can hear yep. me. Um, um, it's just kind of quite meditative, but it's, you know, it's, you have to focus quite a lot because the buttons have to grow and then they have to diminish because the thicker the buttons, the more the image kind of pops out. Um, you know, so the cheek needs to be highlighted and then the eye needs to be very delicate and go thinner. So it's, um, it, it is quite focused, almost like doing a painting. Yeah. When, the first yeah. time you did it though, you wouldn't have known that. Like it, it was sort of no. like trial by, like, how, well, how did that like go? It, it's, it's all in the drawing if the, with everything I do, like the coins that I make, if, if the drawing's right, the, original, right. the, the, whatever it is that you build up on top of it which as long as you kind of translate it correctly it's right it right. will be right but I remember the first one I made I was quite shocked I was like oh I've arrived at something here it's kind of I just thought this has got legs like yeah that, it's kind of like a, a a feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when you've made something that you you know you think yes yeah oh and I think that's the feeling everyone gets when they look at those works and including the queen. So let's talk about what you said that the kids' names are also on it, that the banner for the Jubilee. Yes. So, so how did that happen? Um, um, that came about two ways. Um, a friend of mine, um, a, f- a friend of a friend of mine had bought some work from me and she was asked to design the royal barge for the queen for her diamond Jubilee. Um, but also I'd made this piece for Jacob Rothschild to celebrate the Queen's 80th and the Queen um, is friendly with Jacob Rothschild, they're friends, you don't think of the Queen as having friends but they are friends (laughs) (laughs) and um, they hang out, have pizza, watch Netflix together, stuff like that yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) except in a mansion yeah and and she'd seen the piece that I'd made for Jacob Rothschild as well and she liked it so when um, this friend of a friend went to the, but she was designing the Royal Barge. She made the suggestion to Prince Charles that she put my work and they, they kind of knew what I did and what I made. And then um, they said, then I had a meeting with Prince Charles to discuss um, making an artwork, which was to go on the boat, um, the Royal Barge, um, which was the boat that carried the queen for her procession for the golden, not golden, the diamond Jubilee procession. And uh, it was huge. Um, I don't know, kind of six meters wide, um, and then made from thousands of golden buttons. Uh, and what I made, I made the queen's crest with the lion and the unicorn either side. But rather than have the crest on the inside, I decided to have a crown because it was the coronation. It was mm. her, it was the jubilee of her coronation. So um, you can't just do that with um, a royal crest. You have to get formal formal. Um, permission to do that so I had to go to the College of Arms and um, and they went through kind of boxes of boxes of old amazing drawings of royal crests that went back to William the Conqueror it was amazing incredible and uh, and then I was granted permission to you know change the the image for the day and build it in and build it in buttons and And isn't that uh, where the banner lives now is that where no no not anymore um um, it now it's it hangs at the Haberdashers Hall now, which is um, 
one of the London livery companies. There's, uh, there's lots of livery companies, again, ancient institutions that date back to medieval times. And you have the haberdashers livery company, the gold makers, the felt makers, the woodworkers. It's, I mean, London's incredible. The yeah. history. England's incredible. The yeah. history. But so, I mean, you go into the haberdashers hall and there's, the first one was burnt down in the fire of London in you know the 1700s and they're still talking about it like it was yesterday they're like <laughs> <laughs> um so um so yeah they it's they've got a beautiful livery hall and it hangs there wow. so um and the new lord mayor of the city of London is a haberdasher that the, the lord mayors come from the livery companies and each livery every year it's a different livery company and this year the lord mayor's from the haberdasher's livery company and uh, he asked me to make a big banner for him as well. So they've got the the Queen's banner, and now they've also got a new one that I made for the new Lord Mayor of the City of London. Wow! So, so yeah, cool. Okay, can we back up to having a meeting with Prince Charles? Yeah. Now, uh, so, did that blow your mind, or as a Londoner, you're like, oh, it's just Charlie? Like what? I um, it was very. Um, I wasn't quite sure quite what I was being invited to because um they have to be very careful because of security right so they said um you know it was like would you like to come and have um a quick meeting with Prince Charles or you know where and they said just be at the boat it was a boating base at the Ministry of Defence on the Thames and they said just be there at this time and then I got there and they said can you just walk up the gangplank and I walked up the gangplank and then they pulled the gangplank up and the boat set off Ooh. And uh, yeah, it was like very, and there was basically, there were quite a few artists that were making pieces for the Diamond Jubilee. So there was a, a woodworker that was making the figurehead for the barge. There was me that was making the, you know, the banner that was hanging from the back. Um, and I can't remember, there was a couple, I can't remember what the other two artists were doing, but we were all on the barge to discuss the ideas that we had. Um, and then, then all of a sudden Prince Charles kind of sprinted up and jumped on the boat and we all had lunch <laughs> on the boat and discussed the ideas yeah it was it was very um very interesting and very casual and uh um and weirdly kind of quite normal I didn't I didn't feel nervous or you know I realized it was a big deal but it didn't feel like a big deal right because of the setting and stuff but yeah that's so just because it was very it seemed very casual you know right sitting on benches and yeah yeah so weird because i've seen it the picture of that right that's where that picture is of you (laughs) yeah (laughs) i thought it was photoshopped i was like wait wait what how did she (laughs) (laughs) anyway prince charlie yeah 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 you and charlie it's so crazy um okay so this is this is my big question i don't know why i didn't ask you this for the book where the heck do you get all this stuff? Like, where do all your thousands of spoons come from? Where do you get zillions of buttons? Well, usually when I start off on a new artwork, because I use, I mean, I tell stories with materials. So, and each different story that I tell through a sculpture usually involves different materials. So I'll start off thinking, oh, I'm going to make something from buttons and I'll go to a junk shop or I'll go to have a look on EB's Bay, see if they've got any buttons for sale or you know go to a button factory whatever and then I'll find I need and then if the idea works I need thousands and thousands the same thing happened with the bouquets it was okay I you know I just collected some cutlery from you know yard fairs and what I don't even call them yard fairs boot yeah, fairs yeah, you know yeah and um, and then I was like oh you know this is exhausting I'm spending all my time looking for materials anyway I found myself a cutlery dealer and uh, he just there are yeah he collects um old cutlery for hotels you know, like you have these hotels, oh, okay. yeah, they, like, yeah. they like kind of old cutlery and then he gets it replated, nice teapots and for the Ritz or wherever. Ah. And he comes across a lot of cutlery. And because I like um, the worn cutlery or the stuff that's got a little bit of, you know, pattern to it, yeah. um, the hotels don't want that. So he gives me all the seconds, the worn, the slightly tarnished, interesting colours. Ah. And I just buy it, by the, I buy it by the kilo. Wow, yeah. that's so cool. And so, I know like part of the reason you like the tarnish and stuff is because you like the stories that exist in the material yeah. before you add it to your story, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you, And it, I you saw on know. Instagram, you've got knives going right now that look like foxglove. That look like? Don't, they're like petal, like they're like those um, flowers. Uh, oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. 
so that's um i'm always kind of uh, experimenting and working out so there's these i was thinking i throw away all the the ends of the spoons and i was thinking of a way of kind of using the ends of spoons and then uh, incorporating knives somehow because there's these like beautiful um old kind of knives that you can get they're like victorian and you, you if you chuck the handles are very ornate and they're hollow so they look like a foxglove yeah bell yes when you cut them off and yeah, they, uh, when you I held thought, that up on the like on your last one of your last yeah. instagram posts i was just like that's exactly what it looks like it's so <laughs> no. crazy yeah. So then do you just tell your cutlery dealer, hey, start looking for hollow knives for me? Exactly. Yeah. And then he brings all the, what he thinks is, and I buy them and then I find they're all full up with glue. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, and then you yeah. have to poke all the glue out. And But, you know, nothing is ever simple. It's never no. like, yeah, it's, you know, we have to boil things and heat yeah. them up and, you know, change them in some way. So, yeah. And so in your studio, do you just have like big, like, buckets of here's where the spoons go here's where the pearl necklaces go here's where the buttons we've go. got yeah except it gets a bit too much and uh, I've got containers now like shipping containers I've got a shipping container half full of pearl pearl necklaces oh, which, a shipping container full of knives and cutlery and pewter and felt or denim there's like thousands of pairs of jeans in there from oh making God. denim pieces and then every now and again I have a sort through and then I think I can't throw it away and it all stays there so yeah <laughs> that's amazing I've started doing more sculptural work now and I've been using pearl necklaces oh really and, yeah but I'm still doing the thing where I'm just going around to thrift shops and I'm yeah. starting to get to the point now where I'm like I need way way more and I'm yeah. like I don't know how to do that so um <clears throat> anyway it's just interesting because and like bird yeah. cages I've been using bird cages but oh lovely I, I just cross my fingers and hope that I find them at my local thrift shops and sometimes I do and I've ordered a few off of you know eBay and whatever but it, I'm starting to be at a point where if I'm really gonna do an exhibition like if I'm really gonna yeah. fill a gallery it's like okay I can't yeah. have a couple of things yeah, so maybe look I'm... on eBay or different auctions, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I'll just keep poking. And, and I use costume jewelry in a lot of my work, too. And it's been amazing. People have sent me, like, wow, just sent me boxes of, like, um, this one woman just sent me two boxes of costume jewelry that she found, found in two different homes that she lived in. Like, just, like, someone had Gosh. moved out of the house and, like, left this weird box. Oh, I see. So wow. neat. And uh, she just, she messaged me and said, oh, I saw that you're using costume jewelry in your work. Can I send this stuff to you? And I was like, uh, yeah. hell yes, you can. And so it's really neat because it has this bizarre story, yes. you know, yes. so it's so fun to incorporate that. But I just look at your work and, oh my God, I, when you said about the shipping containers filled with stuff, I got goosebumps. I was like, ooh, I want to go into a shipping You'd like container. you to come and have a rummage. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I have dreams all the time about being in <laughs> thrift shops that go on forever and there's just like buckets of things and, you know, like, yeah. and I think your Me studio too. would be exactly that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what are you working on right now? So you've got your knives going, but are you working on any commissions or what, what's going um, on? Well, what am I doing at the studio? Um, I've got a commission for a spider's web. Um, yes. So I've been making making these kind of giant webs from, from steel. And again, using kind of collected items like different kind of spiders and flies and different objects and kind of arranging them. So I'm, that's, I'm making a commission for somebody in Aspen, actually. Oh. Colorado cool. yeah and so, so will you I mean given COVID but like can will you have to go there and install it um in actual fact we are due to go over there and install well we were due to go over there and install something and then when COVID came obviously that couldn't happen but um I think I think it's pretty easy for them to to assemble okay. actually yeah. yeah yeah so um we, we'll just send it with instructions but, but did I, I see that you're making a spider web for yourself yeah a giant one yeah, yeah. huge yeah because I read somewhere I read somewhere that um if a spider's web was human size it would be the it would be the strength of steel wow if that makes sense yes. and it would ca and, and it would snag it could snag a jumbo jet wow. and um and I, I kind of really liked that and it yeah. kind of thought right I'm gonna make a really big one from steel and I might even incorporate jumbo jets into it so, um, and I've got this new studio. So I think I, well, I explained to you that I bought this studio after the, you know, after the Novograd show. And now I've got another one next door. I've got oh this. 
yeah, it's amazing. It's great to have the space. And uh, and rather than what I've always done is, especially what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, I've always just kept my work in storage. It goes into the cupboard. I shut the door or into a container. And I just thought I've got so much work around me at the moment because there's no exhibitions on. Right. Like work that would normally be on exhibition is just in uh, in the studio. And I just thought, just put it up on the wall, you know. So work for the first time ever is going up on the walls. And how do you and, like that? Uh, do you like do you like seeing it up or it's all right. <laughs> it's it's a fun, it's a funny one. It's strange because um it becomes invisible very quickly because yeah. you know when you have paintings on your wall at home, it's like when you're first up, it's like you notice it and you walk past it and then after a while they just it just becomes part of the furniture. And that's a bit worrying really because you I think you kind of lose your judgment a bit right if it, rather than when you see something coming out fresh and you're like oh yeah that was good that was bad that doesn't work there it's just so um so I've actually covered a lot of them back up yeah. they're up they're up but I've put blankets over them that's <laughs> so <laughs> funny well yeah it is it's interesting because those pieces are kind of in your rearview mirror in a way you know because you're moving yeah. for you're always innovating yeah. and doing new that's things that's the other that's the other thing I mean the spider's web is new it's a new thing so that's fine but with the other pieces um I think I don't know if it's that healthy having it up because it's kind of it, it might it doesn't stop you moving forward but it's just kind of like a reminder of everything you've done that's constantly there you know so um but uh, hey at least you, I've got the space to put it up yeah have you ever had um like a big uh, um like a retrospective of your work like a museum show of uh no no no. That blows my mind. Um, oh, well, I had a big show at the Royal College of Art, actually. Uh, sorry, I have. Yeah. Sorry, I forgot. I would love to see all of <laughs> that. Oh, yeah, that. It oh, yeah. A, oh, yeah. It wasn't a so Well, it was a big solo show uh, at the Royal College of Art in their main galleries um, with, with um, all of kind of the pieces that I'm probably most known for. And right. that was about, about three or four years ago. Okay. So, yes, I have. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know why I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to stand in the middle of all of it. Like, it's just all so yeah. um, amazing and running. Um, well, I've kept you for more. I, I promised you 45 minutes to an hour and I kept you for longer than that. But can I quick, can we quickly do the not so speedy yeah, speed round? Yeah. Okay. Um, I just kept it really quick. Um, so I always ask coffee or tea? Coffee. Okay. Now I was like, this is a Londoner. She's going to say tea for sure. No, 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 no. My family won't drink my tea. I don't know how to. I don't know how to make it. I've never drunk a cup in my life. Oh, you're a girl after my own heart. I am like a coffee <laughs> junkie. Um, okay, is there a dream material that you want to work with that you haven't, like because of cost or because of uh, glass? Glass, oh, I want yeah. to work with. Yeah, I really, I'd really um, like to work with a glass blower because mm -hmm. it's something that I don't have the skills. All the all the time to learn properly. Yeah. Do you know um, Amber Cohen's work? No, I don't. She's no. American. Um, I bet you'd really like her work. So she she does her own. Um, what's it called? Oh, it's like when you a uh, flame, like when you work just directly with the flame. Like she doesn't go in the. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. Um, it's got a name. I know. If she's listening mean, yeah. to this, she's probably like, "Oh, come on, guys!" But anyway, bead, I can't remember it's it's bead, beadwork. Yeah, but there's work. like a name for like just working with like a super hot like condensed flame and you, anyway. Okay. It's called flame working. I don't know. Yeah. Clearly I'm not a glass worker, but um she works with um glass like vintage glass and then yeah. so sometimes she'll use pieces that exist or sometimes she'll melt them down and so she collects by color and so she does these monochromatic pieces made out of all this vintage they're so oh, beautiful. Wow. I'll send you what's a her, link. What's her name? Amber Cohen. C O A N. Okay. And um, I think that's, that's her handle exactly, on Instagram. That's exactly what I was thinking of, you know, like maybe taking kind of like old glass items and melting them in some way and patchworking them. Yeah. Because, yeah. You would love they, her work. And she's amazing. Okay. Like she taught a course in Venice um, on Murano okay. and like, yeah, you would love her. So um, I'll, I'll send you her link on Instagram and because Excellent. I just talked about her, she was on the podcast a while ago. So I'll put her podcast for everyone listening. I'll put a link to her episode so you can hear her talk about glass. Okay, great. Um, okay, and then the last question, if you could travel anywhere right now, no COVID restrictions, where would you go? 
Ooh, probably India. I've never been to India. I've always wanted to go to India. And uh, I would, uh, I, I want to go to Rajasthan. I want to go to the textile factories, the textile shops. I was going to say, um, imagine what you could collect in India. Yeah. And just, I, you know, I'm kind of very interested in recycling and, you know, especially when children don't have access to manufactured toys and they're making their own toys. I'm, I'd be very interested to see that aspect too. And, uh, you know, many objects in India have five, six, seven, eight lives. And uh, mm. that kind of goes yeah. back to you making your flip flops. Yes. <laughs> and I might buy a pair of flip-flops. Yeah. yeah. You, you know what, Anne? You just treat yourself. You get those super dangerous flip-flops and you just flop around all you want. I can afford them now. Yeah. Well, thank oh. you so, so much. This It was so nice to finally like talk to you. And um, you if this ever ends and I get myself to London, I am coming to Margate and I'm going to that you. studio and I'm just going to sit in the middle of it and under the spider web and take it all in. You'd be very welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Anne. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye. Okay. Between the shipping containers filled with buttons and a meeting on a barge with Prince Charles, I feel like I'm waking up from a really fabulous slash totally weird dream. Oh, my word. Wasn't that great? I am so happy to have finally talked to her. Interviewing for a book over email is so different than being able to chat with someone like Anne. For example, that childhood flip-flop story, pure gold. Oh, and a quick note. I spelled Amber Cohen's last name wrong. I was just so excited to connect these two artists. It's actually spelled C-O-W-A-N. Speaking of which, everything Anne and I talked about, including past podcasts, Anne's artwork, <clears throat> links, welding videos, etc., is currently in one of the biggest <laughs> podcast posts I've ever put together on my site right now. Just pop over to thejealouscurator.com to have a look. Thanks so much to Anne for spending so much time with me today. And of course, thank you for listening. There will be more art for your ear next weekend. See you then. <laughs>